All right, if you would take your Bibles and open with me to the book of Ezekiel, to the 43rd chapter. Last week we uh, entered this final section of Ezekiel 40 to 48, these last nine chapters, all which occur in uh, 14 years after the fall of Jerusalem and in the 25th year of Ezekiel's ministry. And that's pretty staggering to consider when we recognize all that Ezekiel was called to do and the burden that was upon him and that for 25 years he was faithful to continue to proclaim the word of the Lord, to wait on the Lord and to continue to minister to these exiles in Babylon by the river Kibar. We discussed last week how these sections of Scripture become some of the most vital with regards to understanding literal interpretations of Scripture and how these type of prophecies help us to see how God's Word can be literally interpreted and how there is no need for us to take spiritual or figurative or allegorical approaches in order to understand them. Tonight we see a reinforcement of that very consideration the, the previous section we looked at in chapters 40 to 42 was the measurement of the temple and just uh, it showed us the millennial temple and all that God is going to reveal in that temple. And let me remind you that that is the thousand year temple that Christ will reign. So if we think of the sequence of temples and tabernacles, we had the initial tabernacle or tent in the wilderness which Moses and the children of Israel built and which moved along with them. We'll speak briefly about that tonight. We had the first main temple, the first building, which David desired to build and could not, and Solomon built, that which Nebuchadnezzar sacked just 14 years ago as Ezekiel went through his prophecy. And then uh, we had the second temple that was built by Ezra and Nehemiah under Zerubbabel, and so that temple then continued from when it was built in and around the, the late 5th century B.C. all the way until 70 A.D. when it was destroyed by the Jews. Uh, excuse me, when it was destroyed by Rome as the Jews rebelled and uh, that became the second temple. So the millennial temple actually is going to be the fourth temple, which means there is one more in between. There is currently no temple on the Temple Mount, and that there will be a temple there, which is where the abomination of desolation will occur, per Daniel. And uh, so there will be a third temple, and uh, preparations for that actually have uh, been and are underway. Several of the, uh, the elements of that, uh, that temple are built, the, uh, the table of showbread and uh, the golden altar of incense, and these different fixtures of that temple actually have already been constructed. So, and we'll, again, hit on a little of that as we move along. But as we looked at the, the measurement of the temple in, in chapters 40 to 42, we talked about the rod of measurement that Ezekiel used and that it was six cubits. We remember they were the long cubits, so it was the 18-inch normal cubit plus a hand breadth plus six inches. So it was 24 inches long, and it, the, the rod was six of those, so it was 12 feet. So when we see these measurements, we can measure it by our uh, 12-foot dimension, and we can get a literal number for what we're seeing here. 
So having the, seen the description of the temple, tonight in chapter 43 we see the function. And the function required one vital component, and that turns out to be our title for tonight's message. And I've titled the message, The Return of the Glory of the Lord. The Return of the Glory of the Lord. Now that's a, a familiar title to us because we have seen the departure of the glory of the Lord. So as we consider again the return of the glory of the Lord, we can't help but hearken back to Ezekiel 10 and 11 where the glory of the Lord departed. What's so significant about that is as we just recounted the number of temples that have been on the site of Jerusalem and one yet to come, the glory of the Lord has never returned. During the second temple period, the glory of the Lord left before the first tabernacle was destroyed and it will not return again until the millennial temple is constructed. So that means the second and third tabernacles will never have the physical and dwelling presence of the glory of the Lord in them. A very important feature for us to recognize both with regards to our text and general prophecy as a whole. So we come to our first point tonight as we consider the return of the glory of the Lord. And our first point in verses 1 to 5 is called the re-entry of glory. The re-entry of glory in verses 1 to 5. Let's go ahead and take a look at these first five verses and the re-entry of glory. Ezekiel 43 and verse 1. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Verse 1 gives us the location of the entry of the glory of the Lord, the east gate. Now this was also the gate by which the glory of the Lord departed. Now, this gate is often termed as the beautiful gate. And in fact, I want to take just a quick minute, and if you have a Bible with you that has a map in it of the Temple Mount in the back or wherever it might be, I'd ask you to turn to that map. Now, your maps might be a bit different than mine, and uh, if so, uh, you're welcome to come up afterwards, and I'll explain more fully if you don't have the, uh, the same description of each of the components of these gates. Um, particularly what I want you to see is you should have a map that shows the city of Jerusalem, the old city, and some of the details of the Temple Mount. Now if your map is like mine, you have a, a roughly rectangular area that is the Temple Mount. And in the very center of it is a small rectangle which is the Temple and then there are various pictures around it. Now, if you go to the right of your map, 
There will be near the top of the Temple Mount rectangle on the right-hand side, there is a gate. You may have a marking that calls this the Golden Gate. On my map, it's uh, labeled as number two, which that may not make any difference to you. But on the right-hand side of the Temple Mount, facing the Kidron Valley, is a single gate, which is the entrance to the Temple Mount, and it's called the Golden Gate. It's called so because it is where the glory of the Lord enters and departs. And so that has been the name that has been given to this particular gate. Now what I want you to see with that is if you continue straight across the page, you will perhaps see on your map a little mark that says Golgotha, which is where Christ was crucified. So there is a line, and if we were to extend that line from Golgotha, back to the Golden Gate or the East Gate and along across, you might see on your map a mark that says Gethsemane. They are in a line. And that's wonderful to consider that line, but there is another very unique facet of the Temple Mount that many scholars would agree to that we will see some support for in our text, which is why I take you down this rabbit trail that would say that the actual location of the temple is not in the center of the Temple Mount, where it shows on our maps, but that it would be in an alignment from Gethsemane through the Golden Gate and through Golgotha, so that there was a continuous line of sight. The reason that that is believed to be so is not only biblically because of our text, but there is a unique feature that sits today on the Temple Mount. And it is a small cupola. The Temple Mount, as we have seen in the last days, is a hotly contested area. From uh, a geological and uh, archaeological point of view, there is no excavation that is done anywhere on or near the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is controlled by the Jordanians who try to keep the Muslims and the Jews from killing each other over it. The, uh, the Temple Mount has this one spot this, that, that we talk about as the cupola. It is a space that is no bigger from me to the first pew. It has eight piers or eight columns and then it has a little arched roof over it, a little round roof. It's a very um, unimpressive structure. It's probably 10 feet tall. The, uh, the Muslims have extensive maps, uh, and, and so, some of that is actually available to be looked at online as well as at their archives, of what all of the details of the different features of the Temple Mount are. They speak of all of it in terms of Allah and of Muhammad and all that Muhammad did as he was there on the Temple Mount. Interestingly, this little cupola has no description in any of the archaeological or other records of the Muslims, and, and that is a, a very unique situation. What's also interesting is that little cupola lies exactly in the alignment from Gethsemane through the Golden Gate and on across through Golgotha. Scholars, uh, many of them believe that that cupola sits on what would be the Holy of Holies. 
and that the temple itself would actually be moved up on our sheets. We'll again see the text that brings this to importance in a few minutes. But what is also fascinating about that consideration is that that would allow for the temple to be rebuilt per the standards from the Solomonic Temple with the existence of the Golden Dome where it is today. So that, in effect, the third temple, which does not yet occur, could be built without any change of the two Muslim holy sites on that mount. Now, to consider with the tensions that are there any way that the temple could be reconstructed and that one of the mosques would be torn down is pretty much inconceivable. And yet we know that there will need to be the reconstruction of that, again for the abomination of desolation, and that this may well be the way in which Antichrist creates the treaty with Israel, and that that is the, the concept of the treaty. Now, one other feature I want to show to you, if your map shows it, is if you find that little temple right in the center of the Temple Mount again, on the right-hand side of it, you may have a small gate that's shown. Mine has a little number six, and it's called the Beautiful Gate. Appropriately so, because the Beautiful Gate leads to the Court of Women. But there would be an alignment from the Golden Gate through the Beautiful Gate into the temple structure itself. Now, when we start reading about the entry of the glory of the Lord, I want you to think about that alignment. Because if, as these scholars suggest, that is correct, that means that as the glory of the Lord came off of the Mount of Olives, as we know that it did, for that's where it departed, from the east and came through the eastern, through the Golden Gate, it would take a straight line into the temple. If our alignment on our maps is correct, then as it came down from the east, across and through the eastern gate, it would have to do a little zigzag down to go through the beautiful gate, or at least come at an angle, which seems odd. So, keep that in mind, keep that map handy, you might want to refer to it as we move along, and let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 43. So, in Ezekiel 43 and verse 1, the gate facing east is what he begins to focus on. That's where he's taken. And in verse 2, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. Literally coming from the way that it left in a line from due east. You'll note that if you look at your map, that that line we just talked about from Gethsemane to the Golden Gate on through to Golgotha is a line that is on a due east-west axis. So the, the glory of the God of Israel is coming from the east and then it tells us that his voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. Incredible for us to, to understand as this comes, there are several references in, uh, to the glory of the Lord coming in to the tabernacle first and we see that uh, described for us in Exodus chapter 40. In verse 34, and let me just read for you a, a couple of verses from Exodus chapter 40 and verse 34 and 35. Exodus 40 and verse 34 and 35 read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It was the glory of God that brought the presence of God and enacted the actions of the tabernacle. And Moses himself was not able to enter because of that glory. We see similar circumstances occur with the picture of God's glory filling the first temple. If you want to look on your own time, you can look at 1 Kings and see in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verses 10 and 11 a very similar description. But I want to read for you the parallel narrative from 2 Chronicles that also talks about the glory of the Lord entering. And that's in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 13. 2 Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 13, which reads, In unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord, and when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals, and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So as the glory of the Lord is coming, and it is Filling this house of God, there is a, an additional reference to this in Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 1 where it says, Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from the heavens and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord had filled the, ho- the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly He is good. Truly His loving kindness is everlasting. The indwelling presence of the glory of the Lord brought a response from the children of Israel to recognize this incredible condition that was coming about and brought them to their knees before God to proclaim His goodness, to proclaim His steadfast love and the everlasting nature of that goodness. Such a wonderful proclamation that they had made. It it talks about how as the glory of the Lord came, His voice was like the sound of many waters. And we know when Ezekiel talks about sound that there is this tremendous amplification and we've seen him use words like earthquake and thunder and lightning and so as the sound the sound of the glory of the lord comes to the tabernacle there is this like massive rolling ocean wave that is accompanying it but what i find is even more interesting is that it says and his voice was like the sound of many waters. It wasn't just an accompanying sound, it was the voice of God that was speaking as he was coming. And I just, I think to myself, what was it that this voice was proclaiming as he was coming with this voice of many waters? And the earth shone in his glory. How incredible to recognize that what that must have looked like with this coming glory and the excitement that Ezekiel must have recognized when this was happening. 
The low point of Ezekiel's ministry was back in chapters 10 and 11 when the glory of God departed and there was no more hope for the nation of Israel for God was gone. But now he is coming back and this truly becomes a high point for him in all of this. That God is coming back into the temple. And we think about the excitement that, that children have when they're younger and waiting for Christmas morning and how they won't sleep all night and our kids would want to get up at 6 a.m. and come jump up and down on the bed. Or when we think of the excitement that a mother has when her son or daughter who's been serving overseas in the service returns home and how delighted they are to see them. These pale in comparison to how excited Ezekiel was as the glory of the Lord was coming back. And there was this future hope and this excitement that was all about him. And he was ready to proclaim for all of them. In verse 3, Ezekiel's connection with the previous vision becomes apparent as he talks about the vision of God that he saw in chapter 1 by the river Kibar and interestingly also in chapter 8 where he says there in verse 3 the vision that I saw when he came to destroy the city that was not what we would note of all of the visions that Ezekiel saw as one that he would pick out but that just shows us the power of the destruction and the impact that it had upon him. This was the same picture. The God who revealed himself in chapter 1 is the God who came to destroy the city. And Ezekiel parallels those two of all of the visions that he saw. And it removes here any question of a secondary author. Some liberal scholars are going to say, this is a whole new section. Some, some later author added this to the text because it doesn't fit with everything else. Well, this clearly shows it perfectly fits. It fits back with chapter 1. It fits with chapter 8. And they're integrally related and part and parcel one of another. There is no separation in these. So as he came, Ezekiel's response is to fall on his face. What a typical response. What a, what a reminder for us when we think of the, the honor and the homage that's due when we come to worship the Lord, when we come to Him in prayer. How important it is that we recognize that we are coming before the living God. And so Ezekiel fell on his face. In verse 4, the glory entered via the east gate. Again, reflect upon that alignment. He is coming directly and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing towards the east. It just doesn't seem right that he would come through these two windows from the east and then all of a sudden make a little detour over here to finally go in the house that's actually over there. It seems like it would be in a direct alignment. And I think that the text bears this out as, again, several scholars would concur. The, the interesting point about this is it's only the indwelling presence of God that makes the temple, no matter what magnitude, no matter what location, that makes it the house of the Lord. Otherwise, it's just a building. Isn't it interesting that it is the same with the church? This is a, a beautiful facility but without the indwelling presence of the glory of the Lord in all of you, indwelt by the Spirit of God, it's just a shell. 
It is, it is the power of God's Spirit resting in His people that makes it a church, no, no matter the structure that's about it. And the parallel here is unmistakable for us. God wants us to see that it is His presence that makes His house. Verse 5, the Spirit lifts Ezekiel up and, and then we see behold being proclaimed. We know that that's that word where we want to stop and take note. Behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. So the re-entry of glory is very clear for us, and we see in verses 6 to 9 the revelation of glory, which takes us to this second point, that second point being the revelation of glory. Excuse me. Like the book Revelation, when we think of the word revelation, it has to do with speaking, and these verses are the glory of the Lord speaking. Now, when we see these verses in verse 5, it begins and it says that, or verse 6 rather, I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me. So there is a man standing behind him and then there is this speaking that is going on alongside of him. These verses are the glory speaking. That someone here that is beside him is the Lord. Like we saw back in Ezekiel 2.2 and Ezekiel 40 and verse 3, it is the angel of the Lord in the form of a man. And the following verses confirm this. Verse 7, the man calls the house filled with the glory my throne and the place of my feet. The soles of the feet referencing the footstool which God will make his enemies to be and, and this will be the place that that occurs, Psalm 110 and verse 1. In Hebrews, we've often referenced that. So here, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, is standing next to Ezekiel saying, this place is my throne, the soles of my feet, where I will dwell. It is, it is his abode. And notice how long he will dwell with Israel forever here. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their harlotry and by their corpses of their kings when they die. What that means is that in the original temple, immediately adjacent to the temple, they buried many of the kings. Well, that was uh, the, the evidence of death was a reminder of sin, and it reflected defilement. We know that death and, and dead bodies were uh, a point of uncleanness. So also, as he reflects harlotry, he's talking about here idolatry. Remember, and we've seen those parallels in Ezekiel, how oftentimes idolatry is described as harlotry. And there were other houses, other idols of worship that were brought alongside the house of the Lord. And that's what he's referring to when he speaks about these. Verse 8 confirms that. By setting their threshold, that is, these corpses of the kings and these harlotries of the kings, by setting their thresholds by my threshold, threshold being a doorstep, setting their doorposts by my doorposts, and with only a wall between me and them. And they have defiled my holy name and their abominations which they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger. 
This is a further reminder that if indeed that third temple does get built on the Temple Mount with the Al-Aqsa Mosque right next door, it is absolutely not this temple. Which is also further confirmation back to chapters 38 and 39 that the battle of Gog and Magog does not occur around that temple, but it is occurring around the millennial temple at the end of the age near the great white throne judgment. So here we have this proclamation of the revelation of the glory of God and that he will dwell with them and that the defilement which is adjacent to them no longer will be the case. And then in verses 10 to 12, it takes us to our third point after we have seen in our first point the reentry of glory and then the revelation of glory. Now in verses 10 to 12, our third point is the submission to glory. The submission to glory. Part of these verses and the rest of the chapter reveal a very important element. It reveals what we were just speaking about, and that is that idea of sin and shame. So we see that in the submission to glory in verses 10 to 12, where the text says, As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel. Why? That they may be ashamed of their iniquities. And let them measure the plan. Verse 11, if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the house, its structure, its exits, its entrances, and all its designs, all its statutes, and its laws, and write it in their sight, so that they may observe the whole design and all its statutes and do them. This is the law of the house, its entire area on top of the mountain, all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. These verses, again, show us this element of shame and of sin because the point of this is ultimately to bring the nation of Israel to repentance, to show Israel all that they have thrown away in their sin. That Ezekiel is to bring them and show them this plan which he has just measured in verses 40 to 42, And that if they recognize that this was theirs, that God had provided this to them, but they have thrown it away in their sin, and thus that they might repent, then it says in verse 11, if they are ashamed of all they have done, make them known the rest of the design. Proverbs says in Proverbs 13, 15, the way of the transgressor is hard. And that's exactly what he's speaking about here. They need to consider all that they were doing, but they had thrown it away. The measure of the plan is showing the detail of the grandeur that they missed. Verse 11 again goes on, if they are ashamed, let them see and know all of it so that they may turn, so that they may come to recognize all that God has done. And verse 12 confirms that of this plan and that all that God has done was holy and sanctified at the end where it says the mountain and all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. No more cemeteries around, no more other shrines around, no more harlotry, idolatry, or death. This is a holy place to God that is being brought forward. The final section in verses 13 to 27 is the sacrifice to glory. 
the sacrifice to glory. This goes back into more of a technical proclamation of the different elements and the, and the sizes of them. The first part in verse 13 to 17 shows the altar of the temple. Now this is not the golden altar of incense. This is the altar where the animals will be sacrificed. And there are unique facets that show us pieces of that, such as in verse 13 where it says, the base shall be a cubit and the width the cubit, and its borders and on its edge round about one span. These verses talk a little bit more about and are reflected back from the Exodus tabernacle and show us a structure that was most likely for the transmitting of the blood of these sacrifices away from the bronze altar. And then it goes on to speak about the different facets of the size of the altar in verses 13 to 17. And the unique portion of that really is in verse 17 where it says, The lead shall be 14 cubits long by 14 cubits wide. It's in its four sides. The border around it shall be half a cubit, and its base shall be a cubit round about, and its steps shall face east. Now in the first temple, in the wilderness, there was absolutely to be no steps up to the altar. The reason that they occur here is because, as we've discussed before last week, all of this is larger. So now there are steps that are required to get to this larger altar where these offerings will be made. And then in verses 18 to 27, it talks about all of the dedicatory sacrifices for the altar. Seven days they will make sacrifices for this altar so that it will be holy, so that it can be acceptable. Now, as we start to see these sacrifices again, the problem often comes as we think, how can the sacrificial system be being brought back into play when Christ has already fully sacrificed for all sins once for all time. Well, because we need to recognize that these sacrifices of the Old Testament are not, nor ever were they, fully propitiatory for sin. We think back to our text from Hebrews, which said, remember, it was only for external cleansing, only for bodily cleansing that of, of food rituals or washing ritual violations. So even the Old Testament sacrifices never cleansed the heart. And so they were not propitiatory. So as these sacrifices begin again, they are commemorative. They're retrospective. They are the same as our Lord's table. These are exclusively for the nation of Israel. These are not for the Gentiles. It is a reminder of all that they should have seen and known in Christ as he was revealed to them throughout time and they rejected. And now that they do understand and that they do honor all that Christ has done and their method of honoring Christ is through the return of these commemorative sacrifices, the sin offerings, the burnt offerings, and the peace offerings. And each of these are reflected in our text. Verse 27 is uh, the conclusion in our highlight of this text where it says, When they have completed the days, 
It shall be that on the eighth day, this is after the seven days of sacrifices for the altar, when they've completed the days, it shall be on the eighth day and onward, the priest shall offer your burnt offerings on the altar. So after the altar is sanctified, the priest will continue to offer day by day the sacrifices of the people. The priest shall offer your burnt offerings on the altar, your peace offerings, and then the last phrase, and I will accept you, declares the Lord. If we go back and we look at the language of the Mosaic tabernacle and of the sacrificial system, I will accept your offering. No longer. Now he accepts them. I will accept you. I'm no longer just accepting your offering, knowing your heart. Now I will accept you. It's a beautiful proclamation of God's plan of salvation and restoration and, and a wonderful reminder for us. This, this section and this picture of sin and Ezekiel's painting of it for the nation and their recognition of all that they threw away really becomes the, the pinnacle of the rest of the book. The rest of the chapters in the book that we're going to look at, these next five chapters, are more of the same. They're more of a reminder and what, it, what we see in that emphasis that God is showing to them is how gross their negligence was in ignoring the proclamation of their Messiah. And hence the fact that they will return to this system, only now do it in a way that reflects what they should have known to begin with. And for these sacrifices, they will be received. It's a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness. It's a beautiful picture of his restoration. It's a picture of his mercy and his long-suffering with these people. And it's a beautiful picture for us as we consider God's long-suffering for those that are the unsaved in our lives. That we need to continue to plead. We need to continue to recognize God's faithfulness over thousands of years. We don't know when this millennial temple will be built. But we know that if it were, if the tribulation started today and we were raptured this evening, and that would be okay with everybody, right? And if we were raptured this evening, that we would still be somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,700 years that there was no glory of the Lord with Israel. It's a picture of God's patience in waiting and understanding and for His perfect plan to work out. And that perfect plan is still working out. And it's working out in all of the lives of our loved ones who do not know Christ. We don't know how it will work out, but we know that He will turn away none that will come to Him. And so we must be faithful to continue to, to preach Christ, to show them the love of Christ, and to never lose heart with our sinning and lost siblings, husbands, wives, brothers, uncles, aunts, because God is doing His work, and He is bringing many to salvation. And if He is so patient for them, how little of a need for patience is it for us to have with these in our lives?